Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, and if you can, leave a five-star rating or a comment. I'm here today with Jennifer Wallace. Ginny is an award-winning journalist and TV commentator, a regular contributor to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and many women's magazines. Ginny got her start as an editor at Doubleday Books and moved on to being a journalist for CBS 60 Minutes. Jenny speaks eloquently about her pieces and hot topics in parenting, lifestyle, technology, and more on TV shows like CBS This Morning and others. Her tagline is, reporting research-backed advice for better living. She lives here in New York City with her husband and three kids. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, Zibby. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, I loved your article in the Wall Street Journal last weekend. It was published May the, in the May 5th, 6th, 2018 uh, issue. In fact, I was reading the paper in the car with my husband and was halfway through before I realized it was actually your article, the one that we were about <laughs> to talk about. Um, but I was loving it. The article is titled The Teenage Social Media Trap, subtitled Adolescents Increasingly Measure and Manage Social Success Online and It May Be Taking a Toll on Their Mental Health. 
So tell us, how so? Well, so uh, when I first was looking into this article, um, I honestly was a little naive. I'd been reading a lot about the research and you know, it's very mixed, the research that's, that's out there now. It's very mixed. There are benefits. Uh, there are also uh, possibly some really serious negatives. So I was looking into it, and I, I, my kids are not really on social media yet. They're tweens, about to turn 13. And um, I thought that social media was this virtual place for kids to hang out, you know, sort of the way I use Facebook. I just kind of assumed everybody did. And then I started looking into this and reading the new studies, and there are a lot of new studies co you know, coming out. And it's actually very hard for researchers to do the studies, get them published in a timely way because social media changes so much so quickly. Um, but anyway, I was looking at this, and I was realizing that the way kids are using social media today is what one researcher calls it, it's transforming the landscape of peer interactions. So we used to be able to go home after a long day at school trying on our different selves and trying to be somebody in the lunchroom and someone else in the English classroom. And then we could go home and sort of be our, for me, like my dork self. I could <laughs> sit at the kitchen sure table. That's not true. <laughs> my parents didn't judge me. I could be cerebral and I, you know, and I could just kind of study in my room. And now these kids, the, the experts I interviewed, point out they don't have this. They go home, and what Rachel Simmons, she's um, a leadership expert up at Smith College, and she has a great book out. Um, what she calls it is a uh, second shift. The kids come home, particularly adolescent girls, come home after school, and they are spending up to six hours on social media, managing their accounts, making their image sort of this crystal clean, perfect image of the perfect student, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect friend. And it's exhausting and it's anxiety provoking. And so the research is coming out and it's suggesting that overuse can be really detrimental. I bet. I mean, yeah. first of all, who has six hours after school? Well, How so are what they they're doing their homework done? Well, like, what they're doing is the six hours is measured by multitasking. Okay. So, I mean, this is like a whole nother level, but kids are doing their homework and their phone is next to them and they are going in and out of homework, in and out of oh activities. And uh, so there are also studies looking at that, at how. Uh, divided their their attention is, uh, but that's where the six hours adds up. So it's fifteen minutes, you know, on the bus. It's it's uh, between classes. Etc. I feel like for me it was nine oh two one oh like on my <laughs> tiny little TV like once a week, and otherwise yes. I had like nothing and, and nothing to distract me back then. Um, I like in your article though you offer some social media benefits, and I feel like most people just gloss right over any any benefit to this because um, the reports are mostly negative. And you cite some benefits as building a deeper connection with friends and having a low stakes way to communicate with peers. Do you see any other benefits, and do you think they're worth the costs? Um, so there are, there are definitely benefits. There are benefits. Um, you know, the Pew Research and Common Sense Media have done these great reports. And what they find is that kids who are really sort of healthy socially in real life can manage better on social media. So these healthy connections that they have in real life, they, it can translate into social media, keeping in touch with friends if they need social support in the moment to complain about a parent or a loss oh, or something great. like that. No, I, mean, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so, but the, the real risk is for the kids who are struggling socially in real life and also for kids who overuse it. 
So there are benefits, and there are benefits particularly for kids who feel like like they don't have other people they can identify with at school, if they're gay, um, if they're transgender, that these online communities can really offer really important support. So there are definite social benefits, and my 12-year-old son said I'd better find them when he found out I was writing this article, he said, please, all of my friends' parents will read it and they will take it away from us and find the benefits. <laughs> so I did. Um, the most concerning part of your article, to me, at least as a mom, is that the study you cite that found adolescents who were more into digital status-seeking were more likely to engage in substance abuse and increased number numbers of sexual partners a year later. Here's my question. Could it just be that the kids who are more into social media were already going to be those ones who are more into sex, drugs, and rock and roll later? I mean, maybe the link isn't causal. It's just correlated. Yes, so it's not ca- So we don't know yet. Um, what, we, what they have found is a strong association. So the kids who are um, doing these status-seeking behaviors in real life, like... Uh, drinking or uh, smoking pot or smoking cigarettes. I don't even know if kids do that anymore, vaping or whatever they do now, Um, that they are also more likely to be the kids online seeking the status. So there is definitely um, what you're pointing out, which is the link that if you're a kid who really cares about status, you're going to care in real life just as much as you do online. Right, so maybe... the social media isn't that bad. Well, Maybe we don't it's not know. Causing this. So we no, we, I, we don't know that it's causing it. One researcher, when I asked them this question, so these again, the study was uh, an associ- a strong association, not necessarily a cause. Um, and the researcher I spoke with, I said to her, you know, is there something about the idea with social media that kids who might not be popular can sit there and study what the popular kids are doing? Mm. And she said, yes. She said the popular kids are posting on their Instagram or their Finstagram, which I didn't get into in the article, but their fake Instagrams, um, which is for their, you know, stuff that they don't allow their parents or colleges to look at, Finstagram accounts, and they're there smoking pot and they're there smoking cigarettes and they're having suggestive photos and that kids, it's sort of a way for kids to study that bad behavior and to want to emulate it to be popular. Huh. So that's a little scary, that is and people scary. are looking into that now. Okay. And this digital set status seeking, what do you exactly mean by that? So digital status seeking is kids who, um, who try to get more likes, who work very hard to get uh, good comments, So to, who are looking for these great follow versus follower ratios. So you want to have more followers than people that you follow. So all of these kind of status indicators that we see on Facebook and Instagram, um, those are the kids who are actively seeking it. And some of the things that they do, according to another study, are uh, deceptive. They buy likes. They, girl, another study found that girls will literally tell friends, please go on and like what I just posted. And part of an adolescent girl's relationship with their friends involves this um, uh, nurturing their friends online as well. So commenting, if you look on an adolescent's photo and you see the comments, many of the comments say the same thing. You're gorgeous, you look amazing. That that's now part of being a good friend, hmm. is being a good friend on social media and publicly. Wow. It's a lot of work to keep that up. I'm glad I wasn't a kid. Me too. It's a lot of work. Um, What do you think about this for grown-ups? I mean, we all, like, I try to post and promote the podcast and whatever else. 
What do you, do you think it has negative effects for us? No, or are we spare. I mean, well, I think it depends on us. Um, I think using it for work is amazing and what you have to do today. Um, and I think the way you use it. So just like with the kids, the researchers say um, the way kids use social media. So the conversation we should be having with our kids is maybe the conversation we, be, we should be having with ourselves, too, which is are we using it to connect with people mm-hmm. or are we using it to socially compare ourselves? And when we log on, are we feeling better or are we feeling worse about ourselves and why? And so these are conversations that I'm having with my kids now because I know that the question is going to be, can I go on social media? And my son, who's about to turn 13, I did get him an Instagram account. um, And we have a lot of rules around it. He's only posted twice. Um, and I've explained all the research and the downsides of it. And so we've brought up these actually really interesting conversations about social comparison and the need to feel validated and how this is really exacerbated in adolescence and why. It's because, um, you know, kids are sort of developing their self-worth and their their identity now, Mm -hmm. Um, and the way they do that is by socially comparing themselves. And that this is really ripe, and uh, we need to have these conversations at home, too. It's so funny. Way back when, when I was in college, I was a psychology major. I did a whole okay. study for my senior project on the application of social comparison theory to cool. eating disorders. Yes. And it found, and I wonder if this applies now to eating disorders as well. I mean, how could it not? But the people who compared themselves more to others um, had a much higher, more had a higher likelihood of them developing eating disorders and depression and all sorts of other yeah. things. Somehow, and like, looking to others. And now with Instagram and all these accounts, it must be, you know. Here's the thing, though. So you're not only comparing yourself like you would in real life with somebody else. You're comparing somebody who used a computer program to thin their body out, to give themselves a digital nose job, to clear away all the acne. So not only are adolescents comparing themselves to their peers, as they always have, now they have to compare themselves to their airbrushed Peers. Yeah. So we used to be able to say, oh, just the models did that. And oh, right. And we could point it out in advertising and we could show our kids. But now, I mean, a friend of mine pulled me over when I was talking about this article and said, look at what uh, my friend's, my daughter's friend is doing. She said, she looks nothing like this in real life. And her Instagram account is filled with airbrushed, stretched out, like the body doesn't even look normal. It's so stretched out photos. And so that's what our kids are going home and looking at. Wow. And not only that, but then seeing their friends at parties or doing things without them, too, is so oh, like, And it's hard for adults. I mean, I just, I came home one night from a really fun night out with my husband and friends, but then there was a picture on Instagram of, like, four other moms who I know all at dinner, and I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't invited, or I couldn't even have gone, but I was all of a sudden feeling so left out, and I was like, this must be what kids are feeling all yes. the time. It's not rational, but... No. There it is anyway. And what's happening is when when kids go on after school and they're seeing, you know, who went to Starbucks together or whatever it is, it's distracting them from being able to do their homework. I'm sure. So, you know, it's there are so one of the experts I I didn't have room in the article to, to put this in, but one of the experts I spoke to said, it's really important to teach kids when is a healthy time and when is not a healthy time to log in. So, if you're taking a study break, logging in and seeing you know, your friends doing fun things that you didn't do or a girl in a bikini that you know is going to set you off. 
Instead, go walk the dog, take a shower, do healthier things to reboot versus things that are going to drain you, like going on social media when you're a little bit vulnerable. That's a really good tip. What other what other tips can we do to help kids map? I mean, we this? have to have these conversations. We also have to keep in mind that one of the studies that I looked at found that kids who are active on social media at age 10 are more prone to having... Um, you know, uh, poor well-being at age 15. And we have to remember there are rules when it comes to social media. You have to be 13. And this is a conversation I had with my kids and I, you know, broke it. I let him go on a few months before he turned 13. With my daughter, um, I'm going to have the conversations with her. I'm going to hand her this article (laughs) and I'm going to say, here's what, you know, here's what the reason, it's not mommy. Here's what the research is showing. This is why they're saying wait until 13. And actually parents are trying to wait, um, until the kids are a lot older. But the conversations we should be having with our kids is how are you using social media? Are you using it to connect in a healthy way or are you using it for social comparison? And that's, you know, something you really have to limit, especially on places like social media. So in your in your article, you had said that the people who spend more, the girls who spend more time on social media at age 10 end up having a higher likelihood of developing social and emotional issues by age 15. Yeah. Do you think those kids were predisposed to already having those issues when they got older? So I asked that to the researcher, um, and what she said was, we don't know okay, um, because of the way they collected the data, but she said, girls who are 10 years old logging on between one and three hours, those are a unique group of girls. So already, I mean, imagine your 10-year-old going online an hour to three hours a day on social media. That's extreme for a 10-year-old. There are other things that 10-year-olds should be doing. And, and what I would say to parents and what I say to myself when I um, think about our social media use and our electronic use is what else should my, could my kids be doing right now? Yep. So in the one hour that they're on social media or the three, what skill are they not learning? Hmm. How are they not becoming the readers that I would love them to be? Um, how are they not developing, you know, in real life relationships with friends or practicing an instrument or whatever it is? I think this extra time on electronics and social media, a good friend of mine said to me when my kids were younger, she said it will turn them into other people, different people than you want them to be. And so I keep that in mind whenever I want to take the easy way out and I'm tired and I want to stick up them in front of a show. I remember her words, which is, you do that consistently, they turn into different people. Okay, scary. You scared me. <laughs> I know. Okay, you scared. Now I feel so bad. I for remind my time myself. When I... No, I think it's just important for us as parents to periodically revisit our rules around electronics. Oh, and one expert said to me, um, Rachel Simmons, said, um, "If your kids are okay with your social media policy, you're doing something wrong." So that's another thing that I keep in my head. If they're not resistant to my rules, then my rules aren't tight enough. Interesting. So it's a good litmus test. I actually, I hate to admit this, I tried letting my kids go on Instagram and getting accounts, and after maybe two weeks, I shut it down. I was like, this is not good, this was a mistake, Yeah. forget it. And they responded very differently. I think that's the other thing with this whole debate over screen time, which I don't want to really get into, but I think it really depends on the kid. I think some kids are so susceptible to getting sucked into this Mm -hmm. vortex of screens, whereas other kids can, you know, look at a screen and then go off and go back to reading. And other kids, it's really hard for them. It is. And you don't necessarily know what kind of kid you have until they get exposed to it. So I think that's 
That's right. And one of the experts said to me about social media specifically um, that adults have a hard time regulating themselves yeah. with their smartphones. Kids don't know how to regulate. So it's not like your kids should be doing a better job. It's your job as a parent at this age, at 10, 11, 12, to regulate for them. They can't do it, and adults sometimes can't do it. Right. So just remember that. Yeah. And modeling, too, right? Oh, Us yeah. not being on our devices totally. another way to help. And... Absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little more about you and your career, because okay. I'm so interested to how you went from you know college to here, basically, from your, uh, your bio. Um, so you started after college as an editorial assistant at Doubleday, and now you're an award-winning journalist and write for some of the best publications in the country. How, how did this happen? So uh, I loved my time at Doubleday. Um, I love books. But I'd always had this uh, love of news, and I really like something that's fast-paced, and I love adrenaline, and I love a little bit of stress in my life. Um, so I switched over from books to 60 Minutes and uh, started at the bottom as an assistant to the story editor there. Um, and it was through her that I learned the, uh, what a story was. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And I was lucky enough to be at 60 Minutes when all of the greats were there. Not that they aren't all great today. They still are. But when um, Ed Bradley was there, I worked as one of Morley Safer's producers. Um, Mike Wallace was there. And it was Don Hewitt, who was the uh, founder, I think you might know him, of of 60 Minutes and sort of the news magazine format. And um, so I worked my way from the bottom. And I... We used to go in at uh, 7 a.m. It was the only one, 60 minutes. The producers work late into the night, but don't show up at 7 a.m. And I would read 30 to 40 um, local newspapers from around the country and look for stories. And so reading for hours every day for years uh, helped me sort of develop into a journalist. Huh. And um, I didn't go to journalism school. Actually, most people at 60 Minutes don't go to journalism school. Um but I was able to just kind of, you know, learn at the foot of Morley Safer. 
who or the knee? Where do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He was a giant, so yeah, he it was kinda, great. <laughs> it kind of felt like at his feet. Um, but he taught me how to uh, how to write for TV, and and as a journalist, he was an incredible writer. Oh my gosh, I would go in there, um, and he would work in w- with one of those old typewriters, and he would sit there, smoke a cigarette, look out the window, illegally smoke a cigarette because you weren't allowed to smoke in the building. <laughs> And would hammer out the most vivid prose. Um, and he was a risk taker when it came to writing. And he, he taught me how to be a risk taker, too, that way. You had mentioned earlier that the importance of knowing your audience when you're writing. Yes. Did you learn that there as well? I learned that there. So Don Hewitt used to walk down the hall, um, and uh, when somebody would pitch a story or, pit or write a script, he would say, I don't know. He would have a name of someone like in Kansas. Dorothy in Kansas is saying, what the heck are they saying on 60 Minutes? He said, you need to know what your audience knows, who they are. And what 60 Minutes does so beautifully is that they know that their audience might not know about the subject before they um, are introduced to it on Sunday nights, but they never dumb it down. So they make it truly accessible, but in a way that assumes you're smart. And I just, that is a really delicate balance that I learned from them. I think it's the exact way to write. Assume that people don't know it, but assume they're smarter. So everything that goes on air there is pre-written? They don't just... Oh, yeah. So every, so the, the process of 60 Minutes is incredible. I mean, they, they allow for weeks and months and uh, several months of investigation. And the uh, questions are written and the correspondent gets involved and rewrites them into their voice. And then the scripts are written and the, and the correspondent, again, digs in and makes the script even better. And then they're screened. Um, by a fresh set of eyes, the executive producer and other senior producers, and you get feedback there from someone who's never, who didn't do any of the interviews and didn't know anything. And then what makes 60 Minutes unique, I think, maybe not, it was the only news magazine show I worked for, is that there's also someone fact-checking everything that's in the script and reading every interview and making sure that what you're putting on air is exactly what that person intended. And so I also learned as a journalist how to fact-check and assume nothing. And you know what it also does? It makes me assume nothing about what I know. So everything I know, I fact check myself. I'm like, really? Is that assumption true? And how did I come to it? And so um, anyway, it taught me really how to be a journalist. It was incredible. Almost 10 years I was there. And then you eventually, now you're this TV commentator, you go on to all these shows and you know, you're the resident expert. Did starting at 60 Minutes whet your appetite for that on-air role? Or? I never thought about it. Honestly, I had uh, I love writing, and so that's sort of my passion. And then I went on, um, actually went on the Today Show for an article I wrote on Real Simple, and some of the senior producers at 60 Minutes who knew me called me in and said, um, you're really CBS. Come on here next time. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to go on around uh, some of my articles. And... Um, I love going on TV. It exercises a totally different part of the brain than writing does. It is thrilling and exciting, and um, I don't know. It's one of the only times I don't think where my kids are and what they're doing. Because <laughs> you're sort of you're in the arena, and you could be eaten by the lions, and so you're really on your game, and it's exciting and fun and. Anyway, but you always seem just so calm, cool, and collected. Like, no different than just sitting here chatting with me. Like, you seem like you have it, Just you just nail it all the time. How well, do you do that? How do I do it? Because I prepare a lot. 
I prepare and I prepare and I know for myself what I need, um, my level of comfort. And so, you know, I might seem, and actually when I go on air, I am, you know, I'm at a, at a level where I feel comfortable talking about it, but I prepare a lot in advance. I am an over prep person. Do you memorize your answers? How do you do it? No, no. My father-in-law who is, um, Chris Wallace on Fox, uh, said to me, do not over, because he knows my propensity to over-prepare. And his advice to me was prepare enough, but don't over-prepare because then you're not authentic. And so I, I know exactly how much I have to prep and then I step away from it, which makes you, you know, it, 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 you don't want to seem prepared. And at CBS, you can never be prepared because Gail King always asks you a question you don't know she's going to ask you. <laughs> so, how often do you think you're on air now? Not do you think, but it's often not you go as on. often um, lately. I've been really focused on a lot more of my writing, so it goes in fits and starts. You know, uh, a year ago, um, I was on a lot more, and then what what happens is I, you're sort of focused on that, and so it takes away from the writing. So for me, it's a, it's been a hard balance. Um, to figure out because I also have three young kids at home right. and I work from home. So um, I realize how precious time is. And so uh, for the last several months, I've really focused on the writing and I've given myself almost a, a deadline a week. So that's been taking up a lot of my time. Wow, one article a week. That's yeah, I've been working that way. They don't always come out one a week. Right, but you write them? <laughs> you have a stockpile? And yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm up to, it's up to the editors when they, most of my things are not pegged to something timely, yep. so I'm more an evergreen, mm-hmm. so when they need the space, they come to me. And how so. did you break into writing for these amazing so, newspapers? Um, and- well, I think my 60 Minutes training gave me the credentials, um, but I will say that it's the women in my life who brought me up. I, I took time off, took seven years. When my kids were young, we were living in London, and then we moved back, um, and I really missed it. I knew I couldn't go back to 60 Minutes with the way my husband works in his travel, um, but I wanted to be a journalist, and I was talking with a friend of mine who's a senior producer at 60 Minutes, and she said, um, she said, okay, the next time we meet for dinner, which is once a month we go out, she said, I want you to come up with three story ideas. And so I did that. And then a month later, she said, okay, now I want you to outline one and, and bring a pitch the next time we meet. And so she made me accountable. And she's one of my best friends. And she made me accountable to it. And then when I was ready, when I had this sort of uh, you know, treasure chest of ideas, I reached out to the women in my life who didn't stop working and were now editors-in-chiefs of magazines, senior editors at newspapers. And I said, I just want to go for coffee. And you tell me if these are dumb ideas. And one of the editors I met with was uh, my editor at the Wall Street Journal. And I said, okay, be honest. Like, <laughs> please, I have to run these by you. And she liked them. And I, I mean, they were crazy ideas. My first idea, one of my first ideas for her was um, about how my husband and I give each other uh, year-end reviews. <laughs> and so she was like, oh, my God, I love it. And so anyway, she... Uh, do you really still do that? Yeah, we do it. That's we awesome. do it like on New Year's Eve or, you know, for together. Uh, but it's like... Fun and casual yeah. and lighthearted. Um, and uh, anyway, it was the women in my life. They lifted me up and they said, let's go. You're ready to come back. And so... It's so nice. It is nice. And I think it's a story that's not told enough. That women um, are not as competitive as they want us, you know, that other people want us to believe. That that's, I think that's more of a social construct than it is reality. Wow. Yeah, I've, I sometimes look around and I'm like, I can't believe how much 
people I started out with have achieved when they don't it's, stop. Yes. Right? Like, yes. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. A, it's amazing. It it's, is amazing, and it is it is thrilling to see. Yeah. And it, I'm so happy for my daughter to see it. I always point out, like, we have a friend in common, Yvette. Yeah. And I always, I always ref- make sure she, there's a doctor in front of her name because she is an MD. And uh, I want my kids to see women in these various roles. I just so. saw her and she was like, I can't believe you're doing all this writing stuff. I was like, are you kidding? You're a doctor. <laughs> what? Like, I'm doing nothing. You are saving lives and helping adolescents <laughs> and all this stuff. Like, come on. Um, no, it is great to have great role models, especially in the face of, you know, these superficial, you know, the superficial traps on social media. Like, that's really nothing. There's no substance behind yes. that. Like, giving kids, people to actually look up to is a... Uh, uh, way more powerful, powerful, I would think. But um, so you had mentioned a couple your original story idea. How do you come up with your other story ideas? Are they from life? Are they so they're from life? They're from friends. I'm a big listener, and so um, like an, a friend of mine was struggling with, um, you know, that she felt like she had a favorite child and she was feeling guilty about it. And so I started looking into it for her, and then I was like, oh wow, like something like seventy or eighty percent of parents have a favorite child and what's that about and what does that mean and what's the research on it and what happens to the other children and what happens to that favorite child and so anyway uh, these ideas sort of start with a spark or another idea I had was about small talk and because I write at home all day I was like missing small talk in my life even though I don't really love small talk and I was like talking a lot to like the guy who was serving my coffee and I was like (laughs) why am I being so needy (laughs) so so I looked into what is what are the benefits uh, what are we missing when we don't engage in small talk. So anyway, these are things that I struggle with, my friends struggle with, and um, a lot of them are sort of notes to myself. Do you have other ones coming out soon or in your repertoire that you haven't been scheduled yet? Uh, Yeah, I have. When I leave here, I'm going back to research uh, for the Washington Post uh, the uh, surprising benefits of weak ties. That we look a lot, you know, a lot of research focuses on the importance of our family and close friends in um, helping us to be psychologically healthy, but there's also uh, a benefit to keeping sort of a diverse friendship portfolio and maintaining weak ties. And so that's what I'm looking into now. I love when people put friendships into business terms like that. Yes, exactly. Diversifying. Diversifying your portfolio of friends. Okay, great. Um, Is there a publication you've always wanted to write for but haven't? So uh, the Atlantic Monthly. So I um, I haven't written for them. I I love their work, uh, but it overlaps it overlaps a lot with my Wall Street Journal work, and I love writing for them. So I <laughs> I always pitch them first. But Atlantic Monthly is definitely one on my list. And going forward, are you looking more to do more writing, as you had mentioned, or more TV reporting, or writing a book? What do you have in the future? So I'm um, I I have an agent at CIA, and so we're exploring you know, TV stuff and radio stuff. And, um, I have a book agent, even though I don't have a book. (laughs) And, uh, so I'm always looking into these things. I realize, um, how precious time is. So I really want to be careful in what I sign up for. So I'm taking my time before I dive into anything. And how do you go about getting in all these agents? How did, what does that look like? Um, well, so the, I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago on uh, oh game theory and parenting hmm. using game theory. And so an agent approached me, um, and she happens to be at CAA as well. And um, CAA came about you know, through a mutual connection. I met with them, and they said they'd love to represent me, and so that's how it 
so cool. came about. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's nice when you sort of figure out what it is that you love. I mean, the way I got into the writing, specifically these kinds of articles, is that I really am a self-help junkie. And this is the kind of stuff I want to know about. And so I think if you figure out what it is, and I've always loved self-help books and psychology, even though I was an English major, I think if you figure out and can tap into something that um, you kind of want to be doing anyway and find a way to get paid to do it. I mean, I know everybody gives that advice, but if you kind of dig down and you figure out what are, what are the things that would actually benefit me today, like all this stuff that I write about parenting is helping my three kids or t- totally damaging them in a social experiment in my home, but <laughs> whatever, I'm doing my best. Um, I think if you could find that little spark that gets your energy flowing um, and that you could devote and you don't mind stealing that time away from your family to do it, and I don't, I don't have guilt about that, um, then that, that's something that's sustainable. Do you have any other tips for aspiring writers? That was a great... Um, to read. To read as much as you can and consider that part of your job uh, as a writer. That part of your job is to read X number of minutes or hours a day. Um, There are definitely writers that I admire and I follow and I try to read everything they write. And I look at how they structure an article, how they approach a study. Um, And now after writing for five years, I, I also am looking at the pieces that are missing from their articles and why they chose. That's the biggest struggle for me as a writer is like for this article on teenage social media, I, it it was a thousand word article and I think I wrote three or 4,000 words. So for me, it's what am I, the big struggle is what do I have to leave out? Mm -hmm. And I think as you mature as a writer, that becomes a bigger, uh, of bigger importance. What am I not putting in here? for my audience. I really, I like to help my audience and the feedback is so good that it's helpful to them. That's what inspires me to get up at 4 a.m., which I often do to write. Oh my gosh, that's when you do it? That's when I do it. Not when they're in school? Um, So I do do it when they're in school, but I often find that there are a lot of commitments. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so my my time that I know is just my own is 4 a.m. No. Yeah, 4 to about 7.15. And and I have to get them up. A lot. I would say la- I would say the last three weeks I've been up almost every morning, definitely before five. But when I have a pressing deadline, it's four a.m. And I work. I am my freshest. I am my least critical about my writing at that hour. I am open to new ideas. And what I find the other reason that I find this is that I I've been sort of watching myself as a social experiment on what drains me, and um, phone calls and you know the little things in my life that I hate doing, like finding shoes on Zappos for my kids and not knowing their size and all of these things, it drains me a little bit of my productivity and it takes away the, the, um, the space in my brain. And at 4 a.m., none of those things matter. It's just me for three hours on the page. I love it. Wow. Yeah, That's it's my gift nice to myself. Image to, what time do you go to bed? Well, those weeks I go to bed really early. So, Like how early? Uh, like nine. Okay. With my 12-year-old. He, he lights out at 8.30, and I, um, I read for like a half hour, and then I go to bed like 9, 9.30. I, ha- I have to when I get up at 4. That's, that's some serious discipline there. Well, you know, I, I am also a, a morning person, well, so I kind of love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a lot of my friends write at night, but by then I am so drained by mm-hmm. the day that I'm not as productive. If I really, three hours that early is like six hours in the day. Wow. 
That's great to have that self-awareness and then to implement it like that. Yeah, I wrote an article on Glamour about it. On how to be more productive months, no, 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 years ago. And ever since then, I've been figuring, because you need to know for yourself, what is your productive time and what drains you from it? And so that's literally this book I was just telling you about. I know I need about, to listen to um, that podcast. This, this Charles Duhigg podcast that I just posted, "Smarter, Faster, Better," is all about productivity. And Charles was saying even that he picks twenty emails to respond to, and that's about it. Mm. Like he just otherwise that would be the whole. See, that's a very male thing. As a woman, I feel like I have to respond to. I know I was sitting there. Email. Like, I was I'm like, like how, how do you do friends that? does I he have? I know. I'm <laughs> like, I, that's not an option. No, I don't. Um, but just. Thinking about your productivity in such an analytical way, now you're yeah. the second person in like a week who said this, like, maybe this is the key to success here. Just For me, it is. For me, it's made me extremely productive. But I'm really careful, and I carve it out, and I'm protective of it. And I don't make excuses for when I need to really just disconnect. Right. But then I do respond to everybody's email at night when <laughs> I'm tired. So anyway, if the emails aren't cohesive, you know, coherent, it's because I'm really tired. I was it's up like at four. A, I have this image of like all of these women all uh, over, not just women, like all over the city in their apartments, like emailing each other, the big moon up in the sky, like none of us making any sense. But anyway, well, thank you so much. This has really been eye-opening for me and motivating and exciting. And I'm I can't wait to see where your career takes you next. Me too. Thanks, Amy. All right. Thanks, Jenny. (laughs) You too. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please subscribe on iTunes. And if you can, leave a five-star rating or a comment. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.